Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. Today, I am pleased to be joined by John Davies, CEO of the Australian Constructors Association. John started out in the construction industry as a quantity surveyor, and since that time has gained over 30 years experience in the industry, supporting the successful commercial delivery of projects in Australia, the Middle East, and the UK. Now, anyone who has had the opportunity to hear from John previously will know that he is a passionate advocate for change at every level of our industry. That's to ensure that it is sustainable, collaborative, and efficient going forward. Now, as they say, however, change is hard. Um, Anyone who has ever tried to break a bad habit or indeed start a good one will certainly know that. So how are we meant to change an entire industry? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Melissa. It's uh, great to be here. Very good. So for those listeners who are not familiar with the work of the ACA, can you please tell us briefly about what you do? Yeah, sure. I mean, the ACA has been around for for quite some time now. To be quite honest, I don't think anyone knows quite how long it's been around, <laughs> but, but certainly uh, over twenty years now. And it and it uh, represents the interests of the major contractors here in Australia. So the the contractors that do the major projects, the the sort of the mega projects, if you like, the five hundred million dollar and above projects. So we don't have a huge membership, but Mm. we have a very uh, loud um, (laughs) and um, uh, interesting membership um, that is uh, spread across both the infrastructure sector and the building and construction services sectors. Excellent, excellent. Now, you recently delivered a seminar for the Society of Construction Law, and the title of that seminar was, um, is COVID-19 Construction's Uber Moment? Um, For those listeners who didn't get a chance to catch that presentation, if you are a member of SUCLA, and here's the plug, if you're not, please, please go sign up. But if you're a member, you can access that recording on our website. But in that presentation, you discussed the issues facing the construction industry and, of course, the causes of those issues. Can you tell us a bit about those? I don't think it's a, a surprise to, to anyone in the industry that to, to hear that the industry is in a bad way or that people wouldn't recognise the fact that the industry has struggled for quite some time now. Um, but what we did last year was we, in response to Infrastructure Australia's 2019 um, infrastructure audit, which highlights all of the infrastructure that Australia needs to build to remain competitive, what it also does is it highlights the impediments to uh, constructing that infrastructure as well. And they call on industry to, to make submissions as to how that can be overcome. So what we did was we we actually engaged Biz Oxford Economics because we wanted our response to be very much data-driven and, and, and supported by an evidence-based. And um, so part of that, uh, first part of that was, was to identify the real issues that industry does face. And uh, when you look at it from a statistics point of view and look at the actual numbers, it's, it's really quite scary. I mean, we have... 
Um, we have a profitability problem. Um, uh, we all hear uh, contractors uh, maybe moaning about the profitless <laughs> boom. Well, there are actually statistics that back that up to say that no one is making any money, uh, dare I say, apart from the lawyers, um, <laughs> from um, uh, the issues that are happening around mega projects. But we've also got some significant other issues as well. We have a productivity issue, our industry. Uh, if we compare productivity growth in the construction industry with all of the major industries, uh, over the last 30 years, there's a 25% gap in productivity growth. And okay, people have be listening to this thinking, yes, yeah, so what, what does that mean? Mm. Well, if we were to say, if we were to just half that gap, we last year could have constructed um, an extra $10 billion worth of projects for the same level of investment. Mm. So that's very significant. But in terms of other issues that we have, more personal or related issues, we have a diversity problem. Only 12% of our workforce are female. And if we look at blue collar workforce, um, that goes down to single digits. That goes down to around 2%. Yeah. Um, and even worse, um, our workers are six times more likely to die from suicide than they are from a workplace incident, which mm -hmm. talks to the culture that we have or the cultural problem that we have in our industry. So there's a whole bunch of problems <laughs> there. And then, as we all know, uh, just over 12 months ago, along came COVID just to, uh, to, to, yeah, add to, to, it. Sit, to add, add to it. Yeah, to sit over the top of that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, that was one of the things I noticed about your presentation when, when I watched it. Those statistics were scary. There's no other way to describe it. I mean, the fact, I think you said 12% of the workforce was female, but again, 2% in blue collar. Mm. That's really quite depressing. But the mental health statistics are also just, I mean, that has to change. Mm. Um, there's There's no two ways about it. You indicated that COVID-19, for all of its you know, horrible, horrible impacts, there could be a silver lining. Um, it could be construction's uber moment. Can you tell me a bit about why you think that might be the case? The reason why I think that is the case is that we, as I say, we, we all know um, largely that the construction has problems, uh, um, maybe not the detail as uh, I've just sort of explained there, but we've, we've all known that we can do things a lot better than, than we have been doing, but we've lacked a burning platform for change. Mm. And so what I see is that COVID potentially provides us that burning platform. And, and why is that? Well, you have um, governments at all levels, federal government, state government, all looking at the construction industry to do the heavy lifting of economic repair, mm. to, to, to lead, I was going to say lead us out of recession, we sort of moved already out of recession now, but to take the economy forward, there's also a desire with that record level of investment to leverage the social and economic benefits of that spend. Mm. But at the same time, there's a real concern around the uh, whether industry has the capability and capacity to actually deliver on that record pipeline of work. And then further down the track, talking back to that productivity piece, there's a concern around, look, we're going to have to keep spending money on infrastructure irrespective of the state of the economy. If we want our economy to remain competitive, you have to keep investing in infrastructure. It, it can't stop. Mm -hmm. But we just spent all of this money on JobKeeper, JobSeeker, all of these things now that 
when we come to say, well, okay, we need to build some infrastructure here, where's the money going to come from? Mm. So we've got to find a way, and government is very keen to find a way to build more with less. And and that sort of then comes back to that capability and capacity piece as well. That if we, if we do have a, a problem there, and at the minute it's all very anecdotal, I think people can point to particular shortfalls, you know, signalling engineers from rail perspective and... Uh, IA are going to do a piece of work around trying to actually map how big a problem if there is a problem. But I, I think generally speaking, it, it's logical to say that there will be capability and capacity constraints given the volume of work that's coming through. How do we address that? We have closed borders. Mm. Um, so even if we wanted to bring people in, we, we, we're going to struggle to do that. But even if the borders were open, um, I was in a panel discussion the other week um, with peers from around the world. Actually, uh, Melissa was hosted by the Canadian Contractors ah. Association. <laughs> and um, what that showed was that, and, and this shouldn't be any great surprise to any of us, is that uh, economies, governments around the world will all be turning to um, construction of infrastructure to lead their own economies out of recession. So there will be a global competition for resource. Mm. And while sure, we have a bit of an advantage when it comes to, to tapping into that, because we're, we're a great place to live. We did a good Absolutely. job with COVID. You know, it's a nice place to live. I mean, I, obviously, from, uh, from my accent, I wasn't originally from uh, Australia. Says and, both foreigners in the room. That's yeah. right. All right. So, so there, are, there are obvious attractions to, to, to come in here, but it's not going to go anywhere close to addressing the shortfall that we're mm. potentially going to be looking at. So what is the solution when it takes seven years to train an engineer to from start to being something uh, approaching useful? Mm. Um, the only solution that we can look at, well, there's, there's two. One is that we need to focus on um, better uh, uh, engaging with the half the working population that currently decides that they don't want to work with us, the women. Yep. Um, and also we need to find ways to do more with less. Yep. So we've got all of these issues that are coming together and where industry is looking for government to, to take the lead and government is looking for industry to help them. So you've got this burning platform now where both sides, the clients and, and industry, both need each other. And so I think that that is our opportunity for change. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, nothing nothing contributes to change more than necessity. And, and I mean, certainly on a much less serious scale in, in the legal industry, when everyone had to start working from home and there used to be all of this concern about flexible working and goodness, we can't really let that happen, but it happens. And then once you realize, you know, it, it has to happen, it's actually quite efficient and, and you can drive that change and then you come out the other side and you might even surprise yourself. So just working together to actually get it done because you have to now, it's not a choice, I think is, is really interesting. I will confess I couldn't help but notice that you were a panelist on a webinar last night uh, with the title, uh, Is It Time to Punt the Lawyers? <laughs> and my question is always, you know, how can we help the situation? How can we help drive change? And I attended that webinar. I recorded the results of the first question, um, which was, is it time to punt the lawyers? And I was horrified at the, at the question. But anyhow... 21% of people in attendance at that webinar said yes. 33% were unsure. 
That's alarming to me. But in any event, I'm a bit disappointed uh, that it wasn't asked again at the end of the webinar. But look, can you tell me a bit about how that question has arisen for starters? I mean, the fact that people are asking the question is something I think we need to think about. And also, I think I know your answer, <laughs> but what are your views on that? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, it, it was it, it was obviously um, deliberately um, provocative uh, question. The, the the there is a small group of uh, individuals that are, are really trying to promote dialogue around all of these things, which I'm very keen and ACA is very keen to support. Uh, for those of you, if you, if you look up on uh, LinkedIn and, and and search the hashtag Hard Convo, mm. uh, you'll you'll come across it. I certainly don't think that um, that we should be punting uh, lawyers. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that if we'd had that poll at the end again, um, we would have come out with a, I, I would be surprised if anyone um, would have agreed that it was a good idea. Mm. Someone did raise the point during the conversation that uh, we should punt the bad lawyers <laughs> and, um, and and there was a recognition that the the, the, the two, two lawyers on the panel were, were definitely not in that category. And I think they did a very good job of sort of talking to how lawyers can really have an impact and, and a role to play in making our industry more sustainable. And, and ultimately, we all have a vested interest in making our industry more sustainable. Mm -hmm. And there, there are there are ways, uh, many ways that, that, that the lawyers can play their part in that. I mean, I, I gave an example. We, we've been having as ACA conversations with Infrastructure New South Wales New South Wales government have their their, their ten point commitment to industry, which includes things like uh, equitable approach to risk allocation and uh, you know standard forms of contract. And, mm -hmm. and we we've sort of raised with them, well, you're not actually. We don't think you're doing a great job of following that at the moment. And we're trying to understand why that is. Uh, I don't think it's a lack of will. Um, there's certainly a capability and capacity issue within most delivery agencies currently, and they're dealing with that by, unsurprisingly, outsourcing work. So mm. they outsource work to, uh, certainly from a contract formation to, to, to law firms. And um, I think that there maybe is a communication gap there in terms of their expectations around what they would like to see them do uh, versus the the law firm's traditional view of what they think the client is looking for them to do, uh, which is generally to try to protect their interests as far as possible through and, and pass as much risk as possible over the fence to the contractor. But I think that that is changing, and I think that the all all of us have a role to play here in calling out some of these these poor behaviors that we all know and have seen mm -hmm. especially those of us that that have got to that stage in our careers where we we are privileged enough to to be in a position to influence outcomes and mm -hmm. I, th I think we can all play our part in, in in this journey I think one of the important things too is certainly not attributing blame I yeah. mean the, the the important thing is, there are issues and all right, what do we need to do to fix it? I don't, from my perspective, I'd be very hesitant to say, oh, it's the lawyer's fault or it's, you know, anybody else's fault. Um, because I mean, again, there's so many inputs and things that go into how people deliver the product that they deliver, you know, and, and one of the things you touched on communication, mm. 
So many of us are terrible at it. So many of us don't ask the right questions, but don't even know that we're not asking the right questions in any capacity, mm. let alone, you know, in, in this industry, just in terms of appreciating that there's a problem. Every other week, there's a headline in the Courier Mail about another contractor that's failed. And you just know that that can't continue. I mean, that's... I just researched this actually yesterday, funnily enough. The statistic for the last financial year is that construction companies account for, I think it's just over 25% of all insolvencies, all business failures that's in huge. Australia. That's mm. absolutely huge. Mm. I'd be interested to see what that statistic is after COVID, if it's actually changed or not. You mentioned before collaboration is not a form of contract. That's something I actually wrote down. You, you mentioned it last night. I wrote it down because I thought, yes, absolutely. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> <laughs> And, and people discussed ways of incentivizing that sort of behavior. Do you have any ideas for, you know, what sorts of incentives might be implemented that, you know, are appropriate? Because obviously there's things that you can do and things that you can't do. But, you know, things that would be very efficient at driving those behaviors. Because I think intuitively humans would prefer to be collaborative than adversarial. I mean, I'm a disputes lawyer and mm. I much prefer being collaborative, you know, in life. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in terms of really what would be incredibly effective at driving that behavior? I think there's a number of things. One, uh, uh, which almost sounds sort of counterintuitive, is, is to focus on disputes. I, I too often um, the culture on a particular project will go downhill rapidly when um, disputes start to arise. You know your traditional stuff. I mm. put an extension of time claim in for two weeks, and and you turn around to me and say, "Well, that's garbage, John. I'm I'm, I'm not even <laughs> going to give you a day. Oh, well, how can you possibly say that?" And um, and and then that starts slowly but slowly, claim after claim. Mm to have an impact on working. Well, it just hangs around like a bad yeah, smell. Abso absolutely. <laughs> For and, a year and, and, and until you have the wrap-up arbitration at the end. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and and so relationships gradually deteriorate. Mm. And so any sort of collaboration quickly dries up. Mm. And so I'm actually a big fan of uh, DRBs, Dispute Resolution Boards. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually... Interestingly, along with this role that I have, comes a seat on the board of the Dispute Resolution Board Foundation. So with I'd, Stephen Callahan, right? Yeah, that's yep, right. Yep. Yeah, he's, he's there as well. Um, so I'd, I'd be uh, I'd, I'd be sacked off that board if I didn't <laughs> at least make one mention to uh, to DRBs. But I, I do believe that absolutely that they have a part to play in taking that uh, that dispute away from the people that are trying to collaborate at site, take yeah. it away from them. Say, so, okay, you put your letter in, you've stated your case. Don't worry about that. Now that's going to be taken away and someone else is going to look at, at that away and you, you carry on, you, you get on with the job and, and get on with collaborating with each other. So I think that is, that, that, that is a, a key component of this. I think, um, Tied to this, and, and, and again, I'm probably going to be a wee bit controversial here, and, and, and this is why I support NEC as a form of contract. There needs to be a bit more reciprocity in some of these contracts. We, we have a lot of deeming provisions in existing contracts that deal with contractors and what, what, what they do. You, mm. you If you don't submit your EOT claim within 
two weeks, then you're deemed not to have, have got a claim. Um, but there's nothing in there that says, that talks about um, a client's obligations or a contract administrator's obligations. Mm. So you're deemed to respond to something, you should respond to something within two weeks. Well, if mm. you haven't done that, well, I'm sorry, it's deemed to be approved. That's the sort of yeah. um, uh, reciprocity that, that, that NEC has. On the topic of DRBs, I've done a podcast with Stephen previously. He called it cheap insurance for dispute resolution or something to that effect. (laughs) And obviously he's incredibly knowledgeable about DRBs. But one thing that you just mentioned, which I hadn't appreciated previously, the idea of just removing that dispute from the people who do the Mm, day to day. mm, mm. And that seems quite powerful if the people who are administering the contract don't actually have to worry about what's going on with that EOT or that variation. Um, They just get on with the business of administering the contract. That seems like that could also be an interesting culture. Well, that's right, because um, ultimately, if you you ask for something and someone says no, you can't help but take that personally, can you? You you, you can't. You just can't divorce yourself from that. So... If you then get a run of uh, asking for things and being mm. constantly told no, yeah. then it's going to have you a, an impact on your relationship with that person that's saying no. So if, <laughs> if you, if we're all- Says hu- most married couples. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 exactly. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it, 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 it is a bit of a no-brainer mm. really, but, but you're right. People, I don't think, appreciate just how much of an impact- positive impact that can have, taking that dispute away from the people that we're relying on to have collaborative, positive working relationships. I think you mentioned that you favour the NEC suite of contracts. Mm. Is that because they might be more user-friendly in your view? Yeah, they, they are written in plain English, the, the, the same clause references throughout the, the, the suite. So if you're looking at payments, the same clause reference, mm. did, uh, regardless of which form of contract you're looking at. I would say, look, I, I mean, NEC is one suite of contracts, and I, I, I do think that they have um, a lot in their favour. But I wouldn't say I'm particularly tied to one over mm. another. What I'd say is a bigger issue for us as an industry, a huge issue for us as an industry, is the prevalence of bespoke contracts and the need for bespoke contracts. Yesterday was the reference to, I believe one of the panelists referred to an 800 word or 800 page contract, which was just a portion of the contract. And by the time you got through the whole thing, it was in the thousands Mm. or something. Mm. That seems daunting. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I thought um, so. So, so um, Owen, Owen Hayford made the point uh, as well that we, we're very good, and that this doesn't just apply to contracts. This applies to a whole range of things. That we're very good at adding things, mm. um, and, and that's why the concept value stream mapping came about because it, it provides an opportunity. Well, let's take stock here and let's go back and revisit all those additions we've added to a particular mm. process over time, mm. and see whether they're still relevant and still see whether they're still adding value. We don't do that with contracts. We're very good at adding stuff, but yep. not subtracting stuff. And I, I thought that was a that was a good observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think um, we, we we need to, to, to have that value stream mapping exercise now. We need to, if we're not going to adopt alternate standard forms of contract and start from scratch, we, we've got to do more in that area. Mm something that has been has struck me is technology mm. and and what role does technology mm. have to play now of course we look around at 
the growth that we've seen just in the last 10 years with respect to what we can do on our mobile phone, I mean, surely there would be room for technological development in the industry. And that would obviously have a knock-on effect to culture and the way contracts are drafted and administered and all of that. Can you tell me where you see technology opportunities in our industry for that? There's a huge opportunity is the short answer to that. Mm. There's an absolutely enormous opportunity there. And the opportunity, the problem is not that we don't know how to do things better. There isn't the technology there to do it. You look at BIM, um, which a lot of people now call digital engineering, and that as a concept has been around for 30 years. Mm. BIM was first coined around about 30 years ago, building information modeling. And I remember watching presentations on it like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, look, that's right. (laughs) And I still haven't seen... No, no. A project with them. And it's, and, and that it's, could just be me. And it's the same it's, it's the same with lean construction. Lean construction as a concept was came around 30 years ago. And you look, let's focus on BIM specifically. Mm-hmm. I think um, the numbers are between 10 and 12% savings over the life cycle of an asset if BIM is utilized. So significant savings. Despite the fact that it's been around 30 years, we're not using it. Mm. We get really excited if we see a 3D model on a computer screen and think we've cracked it. And and yet that is level one of about 10 different levels of, of, of BIM maturity. Mm. So why is that? Well, my view on that, and this, is, this comes back to contracts, is that at its heart, BIM, digital engineering, and a lot of these other technology um, solutions rely on open and transparent sharing of information. Yep. And yet we have the contracts that we use drive exactly the opposite behaviors. We hang on to information because I, I, I could maybe use that in, in a claim against you or you could use that to defend a claim from me. Mm-hmm. So we don't like sharing that information, especially mm-hmm. information about what happens when things go wrong. Mm. So that's a real problem. If we were trying to get better and Mm. we're not sharing information and learning from when things go wrong, Mm. is it any surprise that things aren't getting any better? So is that a a culture piece? Is that a contracting piece? Is that everything all wrapped up? It's it's a lot of things, but (laughs) I I, I think this is absolutely something where I think the contract is a big part to play. And if we get into sort of technicalities around BIM in particular, then you have questions around IP, who owns the IP. But I, I was going to say that. Yeah, but, but, I think that's. But that's not that. That's mm. not an insurmountable problem. Mm. Um, and and ultimately, if we're all sharing of information, the other issue is well, if something does go wrong, who's li- how, do, how do we identify who's liable when we've all contributed to this with this one big model? Um, <laughs> but if we move towards away from that blame culture to to a collaborative culture, and we look at, well, this will be another challenge given the professional indemnity market currently, but we look to project-specific insurance that takes away that individual issue mm. of identifying liability. Then we can start to focus more on collaboration. Yeah. You've given us a lot to think about, John, and thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask you the, the very hard question. <laughs> what do we do? How do we make it happen? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Melissa, because um, we we think we have a plan. We, we we have we have a way forward. Excellent. And and this is this is industry and government coming together. This isn't an ACA initiative. This isn't isn't a John 
initiative. Um, this is um, a whole of industry solution and way forward. What we've seen in the UK with the collapse of Carillion a few years back now, the UK government said, oh, we, we can't afford for that to happen again. So what they did was they came up with a construction services playbook or a government services playbook, which uh, essentially set out best practice procurement and delivery for outsourcing of government services. And it was hugely successful. So they said, well, what, what can we, can we uh, adapt this model? Can we use this model elsewhere? And they said, well, uh, where else do we have a problem? Ah, construction industry. <laughs> so they came together with a construction leadership council in the UK, which is a representative body of industry associations, in, uh, construction industry associations in the UK, and said, we'd like to work with you on this. And this was pre-COVID. Mm. Uh, COVID came along and that really accelerated the process. They, can, they, they developed a playbook, a construction playbook in under 12 months. And talking to, to the chair of the CLC in the UK said that would never have happened but mm. for, for, for COVID. Um, I think that the, we can really, that is a great example for us to follow here in Australia. Um, we could, w there's already a broad uh, acceptance of what the problems are within industry and, and probably just as equally a broad acceptance as to what the solutions are mm. along the lines of the things that we've been talking about just now. Um, but what there isn't, what we're not doing is actually getting on and doing that. And uh, what the playbook is, it documents all that best practice. Um, so we could we could draw on things like the construction industry leadership forum practice notes in, in certain areas, and we could develop this best practice document. And what, the, what they do in the UK is the UK government says to its delivery agencies, you've got to use that or explain why you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Here, obviously, uh, we've been having conversations with the federal government around how that could work, they, and they sort of rightly point out the fact that, well, we're a little bit different to the UK. We have a, a, a federated model here in Australia, so it works a little bit differently. But it doesn't really, if we look at the states as delivery agencies, then it doesn't. Yes, okay, they're, they're a bit more vocal than <laughs> delivery agencies in the UK, but we, we could we could actually incentivize um, them to to utilize this because this is all about improving outcomes. If we improve outcomes from a productivity perspective, for example, um, we could say to the states, look, we will share those savings with you. You can mm. feed that back into your budgets, build more infrastructure, provide more services, whatever it is. So that the, um, the states could be really incentivized to doing that. So what we're looking to do um, as, an, uh, as ACA is um, build an industry coalition together to call for a playbook. We've already had huge levels of support uh, indications of support around uh, getting behind this com uh, th this concept, and uh, I, I might be having a separate conversation with uh, with you, Melissa, about uh, getting Sockler uh, as a signatory to this as well, because we, we're looking for yep. a cross industry, not just yep. contractors. We, we, we're looking for consultants. Consult Australia are very much interested in this. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking to Roads Australia, Australasian Railways Association across the board uh, interest in in this because this could really shift the dial. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you are interested in learning more about John's work with the Australian Constructors Association and what you can do to help drive sustainable change in the industry, uh, visit their website at constructors.com.au. 
And while you're at it, make sure you head on over to our website, scl.org.au, where you'll find information about what the Society is currently working on, industry news and resources, and of course, um, details as to the Society's upcoming events. And uh, if you're not already a member, you can sign up there too, scl.org.au. Thanks for listening.